Philippians chapter number three. Philippians chapter number three. Tyler, I remember uh, your grandmother, Miss Alcum, uh, messed in me, and then your mom often. And both of them were desperate, desperately praying, especially after that second wreck, that the Lord would spare your life. And uh, we appreciate all the Lord has done for you. Philippians 3, I want to read tonight verses 4 through 9. Let's stand together, verses 4 through 9. I want to borrow something I quoted from Brother Troy Montgomery last week. That is, one of the first sermons I ever heard him preach, he was talking about salvation being found in Christ. And he made the statement that uh, salvation is Jesus Christ plus nothing. So tonight, uh, that's, that's our thought, Jesus Christ plus nothing. Our text is Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9, where the Bible says, though I, might have, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised at the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ." And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which which is of God by faith. Thank you for standing. Jesus Christ plus nothing. I want to speak under three headings. And I want to try to cover all these verses if we can, even if it be in a brief manner. But I'm interested in Paul here listing his pedigree. He speaks of his passion, then there's his testimony concerning profit and loss. I read a few weeks back of, of a man back when church um, fellowships were still outside. Um, they were um, outside under shade trees. You'd bring your own meal and you'd sit, and you'd eat your meal and you'd fellowship before and after the meal. Some of you know where Chicken Bone Baptist Church is at. And if you know anything about the testimony of Chicken Bone, it got its testimony. For a number of years, there were still those tables, those wooden tables with plywood on top, where years ago, four years, the church would meet for their church fellowships, and that's where they'd meet. And they got their nickname because they'd get through eating their chicken, and they'd throw the bones on the ground. And so it picked up the name Chicken Bone, Chicken Bone Baptist Church. This man was describing a church social he wanted to go to as a Saturday afternoon, about 4 o'clock. And he said he had not been to the grocery store, so he opened up his refrigerator and all he had in there uh, for him to take to the, uh, to the meal was a dried-up piece of bologna and a little bit of mustard and said that what piece of a loaf of bread he had was stale, but he thought, I want to go. I need to take my part, take my meal. So he put together his bologna sandwich with a stale blo- uh, bread and went to the church social. He sat down under a picnic table, and there was a lady and her family began to take a basket full of food. I believe it had, uh, they had prepared uh, fried chicken, uh, baked beans, potato salad. Chris Wilburn's getting hungry already. 
and maybe a few other items, and then two chocolate meringue pies. And he said, I felt awfully small, but said the lady, while she was unpacking her picnic basket, looked at my plight and said, why don't we just put it all together? We'll just share it all together. And he said, I soon forgot about my bologna sandwich, and I feasted like a king that day at the church social. When we try to bring what we think we are or what we think we've accomplished for the Lord into this matter of salvation, it's about like trying to bring a stale bologna sandwich to a king's festive table. Outside Christ, we have nothing to boast in. If you'll remember last week, we were talking about how that Paul three times uses the word beware. That means to be cautious of. He's talking about the same crowd, but he gives them three different descriptive labels. He said, beware of dogs. He said, beware of evil workers. And then he said, beware of the concision. The concision were the Pharisees of their day. They were Judaizers. They would add to salvation. They would say, well, if you really are saved, then you must. And more times than not, they started with the sign of, or the token of the Abrahamic covenant, that being the sign of circumcision. You can add nothing to what the Bible calls in Hebrews chapter number 2, so great salvation. You can add nothing to that. To the great sacrifice of Christ himself, his blood sacrifice, he being without spot and without blemish, when we bring our blighted resumes, we're awfully small when we put that upon the table of the church social, right? Certainly that's the case. D.L. Moody, he once told about a man that got up in one of his meetings that he was conducting, and he made this statement. He said, In 42 years, I've finally come to learn three things. Moody said his ears perked up because he felt like if he's learned something, it took him 42 years to learn it, then he's going to share this with me in a few seconds and save me 42 years of learning. And so he said the man said he made this statement that it had taken him 42 years to learn, first of all, that he could do nothing toward his own salvation, Secondly, it learned that God did not require him to do anything for his salvation. And third, he had learned that the Lord that the Lord Jesus had done it all and that salvation was finished and all he had to do was receive it, believe it, and trust Christ. Jesus Christ plus nothing. All you can do is come as a sinner, lay down your arms of rebellion and trust him. Paul does a couple of things in this passage, beginning in verse 1 through verse number 9. He gives us a strong warning about adding to salvation, right? He gives us a strong warning, an argument against. You heard me say the last time Brother Curtis Presnell was here, he said some things about legalism. And I told you I despise legalism. Let me tell you one reason why. I got caught up in that for a few years. I'd go home and I'd have to lay down and think about what I said from the pulpit to people who were, who were earnest listeners wanting to hear. And there I was trying to put them in bondage to man-made, man-made laws, things that you couldn't find in the Bible. You could attribute them to men's tradition, perhaps. And we all have our traditions. Our church has it. Every church in this county has traditions that we, that we build. We all do. So so he gives a strong warning against adding to God's message of salvation. 
And then the second thing he does here, especially in the text before us tonight, is he compares himself with the Judaizers. They would make claims. Uh, I am in Christ because I have done, or I am, or I'm a part of. Paul does this at least twice in the New Testament. He does it in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11, and he calls what he's doing folly or foolishness. Paul didn't believe in boasting. He didn't believe you had anything to boast about and that I don't have anything to boast about. And he said, bear with me a little in my folly. And he said, these men are making claims as to who they are. He said, let me tell you some claims I can make. And you remember he catalogs that long list of suffering. And he said, not a one of them would have gone through one of those items. And yet I go through that daily and plus the care of all the churches is upon my shoulders. And he said, now let's see who's real and who's not real. And here, he says, they make claims in the flesh. He said, I'm going to make a few. Let me give you my resume. And we'll, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. You are not saved because you belong to this church or any other church. You are not saved because you've been baptized. You're not saved because you have done supposedly God or the church or someone a favor. You're saved through Christ. You're saved because you were a sinner, needy, desperate, coming to Christ. And again, laid down your arms of rebellion and called upon the Lord. So we don't add to salvation, right? If you're not careful, sometimes you'll look at somebody's life. I've done it. I would guess you probably have too. And you might would say, well, now they, they probably are not saved because uh, I think that's dangerous. John Newton said that when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised by three things. We're going to be surprised at who won't be there. He said, and then we're going to be surprised at who is there. And he said, then we're really going to be surprised that we are there when we're drawn into the presence of Jesus Christ. And that's the truth. So salvation is not Jesus plus good works. It's not Jesus plus sacraments, the Lord's Supper, anything else. It's not Jesus plus ceremonialism. It's not uh, salvation is Jesus plus works. It's not baptism. It's not church membership. It's not our morality. It's not our ethical practices in our communities. To add to salvation being found in Christ alone is to cheapen the gospel message. It really cheapens the gospel message and it lends our efforts in the flesh to trying to gain favoritism with God. If the subject tonight were the love of God from a number of texts, you can learn from Scripture that you can't do anything, child of God, to cause God to love you any more than he loves you right now. And you can't cause him to love you any less than he loves you right now. But you see, legalism, what it does is it shoves somebody's arm up behind their back and makes them feel guilty because they don't, uh, they don't walk out or live out their faith uh, like you do. Legalism puts you in the yoke of a man's opinion. A man's opinion. I'm talking about a, a man's extra biblical opinion. 
If somebody were to come and try to teach us about extra-biblical revelation, we'd reject that, right? Certainly we'd reject that. We don't believe in extra-biblical revelation. God has said all God's going to say in this dispensation. It's complete. The canon of Scripture, it's complete. He put an amen at the end of it. So we reject extra-biblical revelation. Why don't we do that in the Baptist church? We'll put men and women under the yoke of bondage. We want everybody to do what we do, how we do it, when we do it. We want people to say what we say, how we say it, when we say it. It's pretty good at getting people in your camp and your clique. The problem with it is there just ain't no Bible to it. Now, I want to tell you something. And for years, I might not would have told you this. I want to show you something that uh, you ought to mark in your Bible. Go with, go with me to Acts 17. Um, you do know that uh, even a pastor of a church or an evangelist, a missionary, uh, we are not infallible. We all have called Moa, Moses Noah or Peter Paul. Somehow we've, in these... Um, in these places where legalism has reigned dominant, the pastor is almost seen to be somebody who is infallible. A preacher friend of mine preached for another preacher friend of mine up in Mayfield Creek, Kentucky, some years ago. The pastor had been there 30 years. They surprised him with a church anniversary. Brother James Jones, who at the time pastored Harriman Baptist Tabernacle in Harriman, Tennessee, he was the preacher that showed up unannounced to the pastor and surprised him, but Brother Jones had made this statement. He said, uh, he said, your pastor is not perfect. He may still yet, as we all do, have things to learn. Of course, he'd been in the ministry for years. Brother Jones had been in the ministry for years. And he said, the thing you do is you check him against the Bible. But he said, he, he is prone to make a mistake just like any of the rest of us pastors. The Sunday following, he learned that that pastor of that church got up and said he wanted to correct something Brother Jones had said in that pulpit the week before. And he said, he said when he made the statement that I'm not perfect and, I, and what I say is, is not infallible, he said, and don't you believe that? He said, God called me to preach, and if I say it, you line up with it. That's arrogance is what that is. That's arrogance is what that is. We all trip and stumble and fall somewhere. We have not reached the pinnacle of sanctification in any of our lives. None of us have. If you'll understand that and continue to do as we'll look our next look in Philippians chapter number 3, keep reaching forward and striving to cross the finish line well, you'll do well. Watch, watch what the Bible says in Acts 17, verse number 11. Watch this. If you want to learn of a model church in the Bible, that's the church at Thessalonica, right? Isn't that right? The model church, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. You find some principles of what a model church is. Now, not just there, but watch what Paul says. He says, I want to mention another model church to you. Acts 17, 11, he says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. They were willing to listen, in other words. Watch this. And search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. 
It blesses me when I see some of you taking notes and the rest of you, we're going to write you up, amen, because you don't. But, or when you ask a question after a service. And, and what blesses me about that is you did pay attention to as feeble a pastor as you have. You did pay attention to something and you want to glean from that. Don't take my word for it. Please take my word for it. I'm not going to purposefully lead you astray. But you check out what I'm telling you. Go home and look at it. The way I first started learning the Bible was as a young believer, I'd go to revivals. It did not matter where it was. I took notes when my pastor preached. If a Methodist church had revival, I did not know not to go. None of you stroked, did you? I didn't know not to go. But when the preacher would say something that I found quite interesting from his text, I'd write it down. And for the next two or three days, I'd go back and look at it. And I'd go back and look at it. And that's how I learned to start studying the Bible. I, didn't, I don't know any other way, as a matter of fact. That's what Paul was saying. And so a lot of times when people put claims on the gospel message that don't sound right, if, if the Spirit of God don't bear witness with that, go back and check it out. Check it against Scripture to see, uh, to see, what, um, see what is real and what is not, what is right and what is not. And uh, may God help us in that. These Judaizers, they would make their boast in their works and their keeping of the law, their ceremonialism, and what you do, when you do it, and such and so forth, as I said a while ago. Watch this. Let me show you the attitude of a Pharisee, a Judaizer, or legalist. Go with me, if you will, to Luke chapter number 18. Very familiar story. Just to remind you of Phariseeism. Um, and, and I want you to notice the Pharisee in this familiar parable of the publican and the sinner that Jesus gives. I want to ask you a question going into it. And, of course, you should be able to answer it before we even read the text. I want to ask you about the Pharisee. Is he full of Christ or is he full of himself? The keeping of the law, the abilities that you have or you think you have, uh, breeds pride, right? Breeds pride. We closed the service last Wednesday night by quoting that old, that old song that we all heard in the early 90s. I, I can't even walk without you holding my hand. You remember I told you I had two mishaps with my lawnmower last Wednesday morning. I mowed everybody's yard again yesterday. I didn't cut up anybody's water hose nor anybody's... Uh, mats door on the doorstep. Uh, but we can't do anything without the mercies of our Lord. He's been kind to us, has he not? Watch this in Luke chapter number 18. Watch this. This is the attitude you must avoid. Verses 9 and following. Uh, the Bible says here, and this is Jesus giving the parable. He says in, in uh, Luke 18, verse 9 and following, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this old boy beside me. He said, even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Watch what Christ says. This is interesting. 
He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So was the Pharisee, was he full of Christ or was he full of himself? Well, he's full of himself. That is obvious. Obvious. A Judaizer will put pressure on you to conform, to conform to their, their image. I want to get on a little pet peeve of mine. You know that I am a proponent for expository preaching. When you do that out of the Old Testament, it'll be like, but it'll be a little bit unlike. It'll be a little bit different than some of the epistles out of the New Testament, right? It'll be more narrative out of the Old Testament. To a large degree, it may be that way in the Gospels. But I am a proponent for expository preaching. Here's why. We do learn at least something about the context and content of a book or section of Scripture that we're teaching or preaching, right? Topical preaching. You know what that would help our church to conform to? To the image of the pastor's mind. What I'll do is I'll keep, if I'm just preaching on a topical in a topical manner, I'm probably going to come back, keep reining you in and keep pulling you in. And you see what I'm saying? I keep coming back to things that are dear to me, perhaps precious to me. Perhaps there's nothing that violates necessarily decency or Scripture per se, but we're missing a whole lot of other portions of Scripture. Does that make sense to you? We've got to start all over. You're all not paying attention. We've got to start all over. Um. But that's what Judah, Judaism, it's a control issue. And so what do we rely upon? As we looked at uh, Acts 17, verse 7, we, we rely upon the Scriptures, and we rely upon the Holy Spirit, right? We don't rely upon manipulation or high-pressure tactics. Um, There's a church dear to my heart that about every eight years, a number of people in that church will have about every six to eight years have made a second, a third, a fourth, or a fifth profession of faith. Now, let me qualify what I'm saying. If, um, if a church member has made a profession of faith, been baptized, and is lost, that church member needs to be saved. Now, you know I believe that. But something is wrong when that is repeated over and over and over through the years, something is wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. Well, uh, manipulation, uh, do you have, I have. I, I, I have heard uh, people say, well, I, I made another profession of faith because the evangelist made this statement, said, well, if you didn't say this, the night you said you got saved, you're lost. You've never been saved. Salvation's a matter of the heart. That heart comes to Christ. That's in Romans chapter number 10, right? Certainly it is. So we rely upon the scriptures and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I probably, to a fault, I don't say a lot during invitation times. Um, there, uh, in every invitation, I could re-preach the message. You've been in services where that's happened, haven't you? But the Holy Spirit's going to take his word and do a work. He really don't need me to help him. Is that right? Do you believe that? I believe that. 
I believe we can back that up with Scripture. But notice, if you will, in verse number 4 and in verse number 7. Now, these Judaizers, they, um, again, they would have made their boast in who they were. They would have had a long list of what they've accomplished. They would have given you their spiritual resume and made boast in it. Look at verse number 4. Watch what Paul says before we get into the text. In verse 4 he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Remember, he's done told us in verse number 2, Beware of that crowd. He said, They make their boast. He said, If somebody wanted to make a boast, I can bring to the church social more than they can. He says in verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof that he might uh, trust in the flesh, I more. Then in verse 7 he says, But what things were gained to me, he's talking about gain according to the flesh, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss uh, for uh, Christ. You remember he told us in verse number 1, we, we labored this last Wednesday, and joy is a safeguard for the believer's life. If you find joy in Christ, you will not find joy in in sin, and you won't find joy in this world. If you find joy in Christ, if your delight is in Christ and the things of Christ, you're going to take care of a, whole, of a whole lot of problems. You remember he used that word safe in verse number one, and we talked about the meaning of the root of that word, which is safeguard. It's like a sentinel that stands guard at your soul. Joy, to rejoice in Christ, make it a habitual practice. You cannot cannot rejoice in sin and rejoice in the Lord at the same time. So it's a safeguard. And then he talks about that crowd that will steal your joy in verse number 2. When you put pressure upon people uh, in, in Christendom, what that does is, is it, um, uh, it causes people to learn to put confidence in their flesh. And there's an exaltation of self rather than a humiliation of self. It seems to breed. There's a pride. There's no edification in that. And so Paul here, he gives us this part of his resume in verse number 4 before he begins. And he says, if anybody else wants to bring something, put it on the table, I'll match you. And I'll outplay your hand. Watch what he says in Paul's pedigree. We'll go through this in a hurry. Paul declares he's a Jew in the purest form, the most noblest manner, the highest standards. Notice in verse number 5, he begins by saying circumcised at the eighth day. He's claiming his Jewish descendancy here. And to make this statement, when he makes the statement, circumcised the eighth day, he's serving notice to these Judaizers that he was born to a Jewish mother and a Jewish father who followed the Jewish law. He's brought up in the strictest sense. According to the Mark The sign, the token, you remember there was a sign, there was a token sign given to Noah. We see it at the end of a rainstorm even to this day. It's a rainbow. God said, that's my token to the world. Noah, I'll prove to you, I'll never destroy the world by flood ever again. And I'm going to hang a bow in the sky every time um, a shower of rain comes through. Well, that token sign for the Abrahamic covenant was that of circumcision. God gave that to Abraham for the Jewish males. According to Leviticus chapter number 12 and verse number 3, when he was eight days old, the little child was to be taken and he was to be circumcised the eighth day of his young life. Paul is saying this. Paul's saying, I was a Jew. I was not a convert to Judaism. I was not a Gentile. I was circumcised as an eight-day boy, eight-day-old boy. He said, I was not 
Uh, I did not become a convert to Judaism. I was not a Gentile and then decided that I believed the teachings of Judaism and therefore converted to Judaism. He said, that's not who I am. Then he goes on, his second phrase is, of the stock of Israel, of the lineage of Israel. That's what he's saying. Israel was the name given to Jacob as he wrestled with the angel of the Lord in the night in Genesis chapter number 32. God's people, chosen race of people that is, nationally speaking, are still called by that name unto this day. It's interesting here, he says, of the stock of Israel. Does it do for you what it does for me when I hear the prime minister of Israel, when he talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That still stirs me to this day. It's interesting, he, he never calls, nor doesn't, does an Orthodox Jew, uh, refer to him as the God of, the God of Abraham, Ishmael, and, and Esau. See, the promise wasn't given to Ishmael. The promise wasn't given to Esau. Esau was Jacob's twin brother, but he was not part of the covenant promise. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel. He said, that's who I am. He said, you want to put your cards on the table? You want to bring your meal to the social? Let's compare notes, he says. He says, of the strictest sect was I. And then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, in verse number 5. That's to say he is of noble lineage, of the tribe of Benjamin, part of the Hebrew aristocracy. He's somebody. He could claim special privileges, being a male of the tribe of Benjamin, being of the stock of Israel, circumcised at the eighth day. And uh, the tribe of Benjamin, that's the elite tribe of Israel, of course. From the tribe of Benjamin came Israel's first king, King Saul. Most Bible scholars believe that Paul, we know him as Paul. When you first met him in Scripture, you met him as Saul of Tarsus. Most believe his father and his mother were so proud of his ancestry that they named him after Israel's first king, Saul. And he says, I am a Jew of Jews. He goes on and he says in verse number 5, in Hebrew of the Hebrews. And the reference here is probably to the fact that he could read and he could speak Hebrew. Why is that significant? Well, the reason why is because the Jews had been dispersed, long dispersed, in different parts of the world. For the most part, the Jews had been acclimated and assimilated into the Greek culture. They spoke the Greek language. They observed Greek customs. Very few Jewish men in Paul's day could say, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I read and I speak Hebrew. He could take the Hebrew Bible and sit down and read it. He did not have to do like most Jews and take the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is what we know to be the Septuagint. He could sit down with the Hebrew Scriptures and read them to you. He could do his devotions from the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, I'm a Hebrew of the, the Hebrews. So there's Paul's pedigree. Notice, if you will, Paul lists his passion. He mentions his passion in verse number 5. Notice where he goes on to say, as touching the law of Pharisee. In other words, he lived after the highest order of living for a Jew. Um, Someone said this, and I quote, the Pharisee had reached the very summit of religious experience, the highest ideals a Jew could ever hope to to, to attain. The word Pharisee means separated one. Their aim in life was 
to keep even the smallest implications of the law, to observe all the ceremonial gatherings and observances, to keep all the traditions of the religious system. And he did it to a T. He never took a day off. He never took a vacation from being all that he's listed here until the day he was saved. Uh, Saul of Tarsus was a man headed someplace after the Jewish order of religion. Uh, you've, you've, read, you've read about men that would, um, that would join a monastery and separate themselves. Um, they believe that it means literally to seclude from everybody else in life and every other event in life. But now the Lord told us when he performed his first miracle, that's wrong, right? After all, he did go to the wedding at Cana of Galilee where there was a large gathering of people. And we're not to be of this world, but we do live in it. And we interact with people. I read a rather humorous story of a man who uh, took a vow as a monk. He went into a monastery. He took a vow to live a life of seclusion. He could only come out and speak two words every four years. And after his first uh, after every four years, he could speak two words. After his first four years, he comes out. The priest asked him what, he, what his two words were, and he said, bed hard. And he went back to his place of seclusion. After he spent another four years, he come out. The priest asked him what his two words were. He said, food cold. And he goes back into his dwelling, and four years later, he surfaces again priest asked him what he had to say, and he said, I quit. And the priest said, doesn't surprise me at all. He said, all you've done is gripe and complain ever since you've been here. <laughs> Paul says, it's touching the law of Pharisees. He said, you could not point your finger at me. In verse number 6, he goes on, concerning zeal, he says, persecuting the church. Don't you know it broke the great heart of Paul once he was saved? To look in the faces of people who knew people that he had persecuted and hurt. Don't you know it pulled at him? Don't you know it weighed on him? You can go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, and he writes of it. You can go to Galatians chapter number 1, verses 13 to 16, and he writes of it. It bothered him. It bothered him. But he's talking about his zeal here. And then he goes on in verse number 6, he writes, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Concerning the law, he said, I was rigid, very rigid. I kept every letter of the law. Notice with me lastly, verses 7 to 9. Let's read the verses. I want to make just a few statements, and I'm finished tonight. He, he lists this pedigree. He lists his passions. He lists his zeal, what he's done, and what he's done in the flesh that he could put against the Judaizers in verses 4, 5, and 6. Then he begins verse 7 with, the little conjunctive word, but. He said, but. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul becomes an accountant for us here. He uses accounting terms. 
When he uses this word count in verse 7, then in verse number 8, he uses the word twice again, the word count. Uh, it would be like you working the books at, at an accountant's office. And he's marking off his gains and his losses. And on his spreadsheet, when he finishes and pushes it back across the table, he said, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he said, that counts for nothing. He said, that doesn't gain me any favor with God. Being circumcised of the eighth day of the stock of Israel doesn't gain me anything. I was a sinner. I had nothing to bring to the table. I could boast all I wanted to boast, but I had, I had nothing. The only thing I have to my credit is Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, good morals can keep a person out of jail, but only Jesus Christ can keep a person out of hell. That's the truth. The gospel is found and where we make our play and where Brother Troy preached all those years ago. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Here's the gospel. The Bible says, Therefore by grace he is saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is a gift from God. A gift is of the grace of God. All you can do is receive it. All you can do is cry out for it. All you can do is trust him. That's all you can bring to this matter of salvation. He said, all this other stuff is nothing but refuse, rubbish, garbage, fit for the dunghill. Uh, very young uh, in the ministry, very early in the ministry, <clears throat> I took a liking to old books. Uh, I had a liking for old writers even early in the ministry. My pastor didn't read anybody other than Matthew Henry and, and Oliver B. Green. Matter of fact, he told me don't buy any books unless you buy Oliver, Green, Oliver B. Green and Matthew Henry. That's all I bought up all that I could. And, and um, the first illustration book I bought was uh, printed in the 1800s. I've still got it. And the binding is rather loose on it. A man was saved in a service. He had been invited to church services. A man in Birmingham, England. The book was written, compiled by an English writer. And the man didn't know much. He just knew he was saved. Every time he'd go to church, he'd hear the gospel preached and an invitation given. And finally, he responded to the gospel and was gloriously saved. He was in his barber shop. And through tears, he was trying to tell the barber how he was saved. Some men waiting for the barber's chair. Uh, they didn't outright heckle him, as I remember the story, but they began asking him questions about the Bible and creation and heaven and hell. And, and at every turn, almost, he would say, I don't know. And finally, one of them spoke up and asked him, said, uh, what do you know then? And he said, I know I'm saved. I trusted Christ. And I know that much, and I'll learn the rest later. But I know that I'm saved. All the baloney <laughs> is pushed aside when we come to the table of Christ. Jesus Christ plus nothing. Plus nothing. I rejoice in Christ. Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Let's stand with this miss.